2: Hi everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Sky History's Not What You Thought You Knew. I'm your host, Dr Fern Riddell, and in this episode we're in 18th century London. It's the 9th of April, 1787, and we're at Carlton House, the residence of the then Prince of Wales, George Augustus Frederick. Now at this time, Carlton House had become the centre of the fashionable elite world. It is decadent, opulent, the home of the heir to the throne who is now very close to assuming power thanks to the serious decline in health of his father, George III. This is the heart of the court in waiting. Their every move is studied and gossiped about by the rest of British society. And on this gentle April day, surrounded by his courtier's family, women and children, the prince watches the Chevalier d'Eon, a noted French ambassador, in a fencing match with another champion of the sword, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Now, this is hardly unusual entertainment for the upper classes at this time, but in the images we have of this match of champions, something may surprise you. The Chevalier d'Eon is dressed as a woman. In each episode of Not What You Thought You Knew, we'll be revealing the stories of some little known yet extraordinary figures from the past. And in this episode, we're looking at the amazing story of the Chevalier d'Eon, a French diplomat and spy who spent the first part of their life living as a respected and honoured soldier, gaining entrance to the Russian court, Paris, London and then changing their gender to female and living as a woman for the rest of their life. Now I have two incredible guests for you today to pick apart this historical world, the author and historian Dr Andrew Lear and curator of the Museum of Transology E.J. Scott, but before them, let's talk a little more about the Chevalier themselves. Born Charles d'Aon de Beaumont in 1728, the Chevalier d'Aon came from a noble but poor French aristocratic family and, like many young men, soon found fame and success in a diplomatic and military career. In 1756, Dayon joined King Louis XV personal spy network and was soon sent to Russia to bolster support for France against England in the court of the Empress Elizabeth. At the time, England was attempting to deny the French access to the Empress by only allowing women and children to cross the border into Russia. It is claimed this is when the Chevalier first began to dress as a woman. After four years in Russia, Dion returned to France to fight in the later stages of the Seven Years' War, earning acclaim in the field of battle, which led to their next appointment in London. And it was here that rumours surrounding Dion's gender first began to appear. Now my first guest is here to dig into the Chevalier's life and the rumours that began to swirl around them. I'm joined now by Dr. Andrew Lear, who is an American author, classicist and historian of gender and sexuality. Thank you so much for joining us today. What can you tell me about the Chevalier's early life and career in France?
1: You know, that's really probably the part of his life that we discuss the least because there's nothing extraordinary about it. Um, He was relatively a significant soldier. Um, And I'm using the word he here because if you talk about his early life, uh, there was never, no question was ever brought up about his gender until quite late. I think what interests me most about the Chevalier's life is um, the absolute, in which something nobody ever remarks on, is the absolute and total lack of romantic, erotic, or marital connections. Uh, So... I would say that's what's, what's kind of interesting about the early life. He did live to 40 or 50, in an era in which a man of his social class would be assumed to marry. I mean, you know, we think of marriage as a romantic or erotic connection between two people, a mutual connection. Um, but this is entirely part of a modern world, which, uh, by the way, I believe was started to some extent by Queen Victoria. Um, who publicised the idea of love marriage? Not because she really had one, because she didn't. She was married to somebody who had been brought up to marry her.
2: Well, this is as a nineteenth-century expert. This is getting very, very intriguing to me because I would say, uh, from the work that I do, the Victorian idea of love is central to something that we see really from the eighteen, from the seventeen ninety onwards in our British culture. It's very much there especially linked to sexuality
1: yes and as someone who works on art and we'll have to talk about that another time but (laughs) I see it a lot in uh, portraiture because suddenly you have this theme of couples and probably the most famous is David's portrait of um lavoisier uh, monsieur et madame lavoisier but there are all these couples portrayed as companions as we say in companionate marriage but uh, yeah, before that time, that really wasn't the idea. And I think it, that probably took a very long time to um, become actually common, <laughs> which is to say, because marriage had a more, has more practical aspects, particularly in a society where there is no divorce. So you get married to have legitimate heirs to whom to pass on your fortune. Now, the chevalier did not come from a terribly wealthy family. The, the chevalier is a very minor and rather impoverished aristocrat, but he had gone up through the education and bureaucratic system to become someone with quite substantial wealth. He received huge, uh, it's kind of a funny mix between a bureaucracy and, and a monarchy of an almost Persian kind. The king would just give people you know, a purse of so many large gold <laughs> coins. And, and the Chevalier had got quite a number of them because he was a wonderful spy. <laughs> and Chevalier is a title that he himself got. He wasn't, he wasn't born a Chevalier.
2: How did he get that?
1: One of his military exploits. He fought in a number of battles in the Seven Years' War uh, and was uh, much decorated for them. He had the Quad Saint-Louis, which was the highest uh, medal in the French uh, military.
2: This is a minor aristocrat who is then getting acknowledgement on the field of battle. And this is a very masculine identity, isn't it? This is a very, a very straight, cisgendered, normal, powerful male role that we see him fulfilling at this time in his life.
1: Well, and he wanted to continue to fulfill it forever. Uh, we see the Chevalier often dressed as a woman, The Chevalier did want it to be known that he was a woman, but he didn't want to dress as a woman. He always wanted to wear his dragoon's uniform throughout his life, and he volunteered to fight in the American Revolution. He was just uh, for the French, of course.
2: So how did we end up with the life of someone who, at the start of their life, is living a very masculine-centric role, who then becomes what we have, we have referred to as someone who is living a trans life and living as a woman. You seem to disagree with that very much.
1: No, well, first of all, I'm not sure that he it was what we would call trans. I think it's more likely that he was what we call intersex. So intersex would mean that he had um, uh, physical bodily characteristics of both sexes. Uh, we don't 100% know that, but we do have the record of an examination of his corpse when he died. And we know, it's very clear about his having male genitalia, uh, but the rest is a little obscure, but it says something about the fullness of breast. Does that mean he had female breasts? And it's also possible, by the way, that he had ambiguous genitalia. That is to say, the doctor's report says that he had fully formed male genitalia, but presumably the doctor was not... Uh, keyed into to looking for signs that perhaps he also had other genitalia. So it's well, very hard. We,
2: we do know at this time that there was, a, especially during the 18th century, a great amount of focus on, on bodily, on intersex bodies, on, on male bodies, on female bodies, and that there were the starting of publication of records into what was going on underneath your clothes, which is a very modern fixation. So I think it's, it's starting to become something that people are, are acknowledging and publishing in medical and wider communities. What interests me about the Chevalier is Russia. And this is a part of his life where everything seems to change. And his experiences in Russia seem to then dictate how the world sees them after this. Am I wrong when I say that?
1: Well, I- I'm not sure we know what happened in Russia. That is to say, he said, later on that he was dressed as a woman in Russia, but we don't have any evidence that that's true. And so, um, and you know, this is a complicated thing about the Chevalier. We have, most of what we have about him is just rumors, but it it very often seems that the person who started the rumors was the Chevalier, (laughs) rather than anyone else. We, We don't have any other account.
2: We don't have any other account apart from their own account of this time. Why do you, because as as a historian who's worked a lot on biography, I often fall very heavily on the side of the fact we need to take the words. We need to question and explore and check and fact check. But we also have to take the word of the people who leave us a record of their lives. Why don't you believe the Chevalier's version of their life?
1: The stories about Russia strike me as a little dubious because they were still appointed a diplomat in England without any acknowledgement of the idea that they might have been dressed in women's clothing and so on and so forth. The idea of the Chevalier being a woman doesn't come up until later. And so I suspect the Chevalier of inventing a backstory for it. Um, for, for instance, as I say, my, my, if if you can... You know, I wonder this about was a bonheur, too. I mean, who was intersex? It's a very hard, that's a very hard question. Because as you say, it was being discussed medically, but that doesn't mean that, you know, just go back to Queen Victoria. Doctors knew that hemophilia was genetic in Queen Victoria's time. But did Queen Victoria know? Probably not. Um, and so, um, similarly, you know, was current theory about intersex bodies, making its way up to the chevalier. It doesn't seem very likely, really. The rumour a- appears at a certain point that the chevalier was a woman. But uh, there doesn't seem to be have been any rumour about that before.
2: So help me understand what happens, because we have this very masculine soldier, who then seems to appear to start a rumour, or rumours are started that they are in fact a woman. And this then leads to them dressing as a woman in society, being acknowledged as a woman in society. And isn't it true that they were only allowed to return to France at one point under the condition that they wore women's clothing? So how does that happen?
1: It's probably best to see it in the context of the Chevalier's political career, which is to say the Chevalier was a diplomat in England or a spy. Some boundary between those things, a little, basically a spy.
2: And that's for the French?
1: For the French, yes. Uh, Louis XV was an absolutely terrible king, and he maintained, uh, well, this is all what The Three Musketeers is about. He maintained a secret spy service of his own that often worked against his public uh, stance as monarch. And one of the things that his secret spy service was working on was the idea of invading England. And the Chevalier was important in that. He was involved in planning the invasion of England as a diplomat in England. Uh, and then he had problems with the crown because he had been temporarily in the position of ambassador, but never really the ambassador. And then a new ambassador was sent. And he, uh, yeah, here we're calling him he because now we're talking about him as a diplomat. <laughs> they were demoted in rank to you know, secretary, something or other, to the um, embassy. And they objected. And so they started a letter-writing campaign to French newspapers um, attacking the crown. And it was impossible for the crown to do very much about this because they had, you know, trunks full of letters from the king about invading England. So in effect, the Chevalier was blackmailing the French crown. And the crown couldn't either dismiss him or get him to come back. But then in the midst of all this, the rumor starts that they were a woman. And I believe from some of the letters, it's not very clear, but I think it may have been part of a campaign on the Chevalier's part to portray themselves as a heroine like Joan of Arc. And she was the ultimate French heroine.
2: So so you think the Chevalier identified very much with, with the idea and the identity of Joan of Arc? And, and felt and adopted this as their, as their own persona.
1: The Chevalier wanted it to be known that they were a woman, but to dress as a man. But eventually, Louis XVI lured the Chevalier back to France uh, with money um, on the condition that the Chevalier dress as a woman. And I happen to have seen somewhere, and I really need to follow this up that at that point, it doesn't last very long that the chevaliers in Paris because they were uh, exiled in internal exile to their estates. But they were in Paris for a while and I think that they may have been part of the fashionable world around Marie Antoinette and that the money, some of the money may have come directly from the Queen to buy, because, because a woman's clothing is expensive and the money to buy the Ro, uh, robe à la française, etc., that uh, a woman would have to wear it came
2: from the crown. The chevalier. One thing the chevalier doesn't seem to experience, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is any form of prosecution for no, no, for living that life. No. So they, so they aren't, they aren't facing. They are acknowledged in society for whichever gender identity they are living at that time, and the fact that it it might change. They don't, they don't seem to find any punishment socially from that.
1: Well, um, there were cartoons the Chevalier was made fun of. There were cartoons, for instance, of a, of a figure being half a man, half a woman, things like that. There were cartoons of the Chevalier. Uh, but, you know, people were made. Uh, this is sort of what puts the Chevalier in Marie Antoinette world. The, there were, you know, newspapers were full of cartoons of the fancy people uh, I, I work a lot with um, a number of other people who be, had unusual romantic lives by the standards of their time, like Emma Hamilton or Grace uh, Grace Dalrymple Elliott, who was a ooh, let, mm, let's say she was a courtesan, something like that. She was so, okay, more or less the mistress of um, the Marquess of Chumley. But also of George the Fourth when he was Prince of Wales and a few other people. And these people are, there are songs about them, there are cartoons about them. And what I'm beginning to find a little bit of evidence for is that they knew each other. So there was a world of racy, of slightly scandalous fancy people who hung out laughing about the cartoons about them. And I think the Chevalier may have, at least glancingly, Um, been in that world because in in that world in France was Marie Antoinette's. Certainly the Chevalier was made fun of, but nothing serious. They they suffered no major consequences. They did go back to England uh, before the revolution, not during the revolution, and they did die rather poor. But uh, that would be because they're pent now. I'm, I'm just thinking, trying to remember. That would be because they were no longer getting their pension from the king.
2: So the French Revolution happens and the Chevalier, who had a, whilst an unusual character and an acknowledged character in society, they lose the support, the safety net that they had.
1: Before the Revolution, it it was generally believed, assumed, whatever, that there were exceptions. And exceptions, you know, like women painters for instance, generally women were not supposed to be professional painters, but if there was a talented woman painter and she happened to catch the King's attention and the King said, oh, what a wonderful portrait here, have, you know, 2000 gold uh, écus," Then um, she, then it was okay. I think it might be that the Chevalier was one of those exceptions. And that after the revolution, there wasn't as much of a place in society. But that might be taking, drawing too big a conclusion.
2: Well, is it is it a case of when the revolution happens, as you said, suddenly society is being re-established along very different rules and very different lines of, of interaction and culture and how you talk, you treat one another. And in, in, a, in a sense, it begins this process of loss of the fluidity and freedom that existed before.
1: Mm, it might be, yes. Although that freedom might almost only have been available to people in some form of elite. Like the Chevalier, you don't have to be very high up. But I don't think that it would have worked if he'd been a peasant.
2: I am going to draw us to a close with one final question, if I can. The Chevalier, we've talked a little about these amazing cartoons and these paintings and prints, satirical drawings. Some of these are uh, held, I believe, in the National Portrait Gallery in London. Do you have a favourite depiction of the Chevalier?
1: The only thing I know that the NPG has is a portrait of the Chevalier, uh, which is really the... um, It it, it resumes the Chevalier's identity to such an extent because uh, they are dressed as a woman, uh, but again, like Rosa Bonheur, they don't particularly look like a woman, and proudly wearing the Croix de Saint Louis so you see the whole situation of them being forced to wear women's clothing and nonetheless uh, insisting on their military valour. Well, it's the whole extremely complicated situation of their gender identity is on view in that portrait. And that was purchased by the NPG quite recently. It's, it's maybe the most famous recent purchase. I hope we can at least end this with an ad for the National Portrait Gallery. <laughs> Don't think that's a boring institution, because if you do, you're wrong. It is the most packed with interesting uh, information about yeah, gender, sexuality, through British history. It's a wonderful place.
2: We might think that the idea of the Chevalier being forced to wear women's clothes means our modern perception of them as a trans life might be wrong. But it would have been very easy for the Chevalier to prove their gender identity by submitting to an examination. And in fact, this was proposed. A year-long betting pool was started on the London Stock Exchange about Dion’s natural sex. The Chevalier was even invited to join it, but they declined, saying it would be dishonouring. And I think perhaps this is something we haven't acknowledged yet about the life the Chevalier was living. How disrespectfully they were treated at this time. And although they may not have faced prosecution, the satirical cartoons were cruel, as was the wager, and for someone like the Chevalier, a person who had commanded such respect for their skills and ability, it must have been incredibly hard to be treated in this way, simply because of their choice to live as a woman. Whether the Chevalier was intersex, as Dr Lear suggests, or living a trans life, One of the reasons they are so important now is because of how intersex and trans lives are viewed today. To add more context to what the Chevalier d'Eon means for us, and the importance of ensuring we preserve gender nonconformity in our history, we spoke to E.J. Scott, curator of the Museum of Transology.
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: I am so excited to talk to you, EJ. Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you for having me, Fern. It's a pleasure.
2: Now, you are the brains behind the Museum of Transology. Can you explain a little about that project to our listeners?
4: The Museum of Transology is... A collection, a physical collection of trans people's objects and stories, their material culture, if you like. And it's the biggest one in the world ever, anywhere. In order to ensure that that information is captured and can't be overwritten or separated in future, The the objects come with a little brown swing tag attached to them and on the swing tag is a handwritten story that explains the significance of the artefacts to the trans person's gender identity. The objects themselves were as diverse as the gender experiences and identities that they reflected so there's objects that are to do with um, reshaping the body, for example. So these might be medical or they might be um, objects to shape the silhouette as as cisgender women have done throughout history as well with the use of bras and so forth. Um, There are many items of dress and fashion, makeup, beauty ephemera, children's toys, objects used in self-protection, religious hair gear, human remains you name it so it's it's a really diverse collection and in a way that diversity in and of itself proves the point of 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 the mission of the collection if you like because It was founded in 2014, and this is sort of this this moment that we often refer to as the trans tipping point, if you like. And and this is when we see this huge spike in the visibility of trans people's lives and bodies, quite often, in the media. And so there's this hyper spectacularization of trans people. There's a lot of of talk about them uh, rather than by them. What we weren't seeing was that museums were responding to this shift in gender awareness in the uk and the, and, and the Western world at large that that potentially reflected the, the larger shift in gender awareness that we 've seen since second wave feminism in the '70s people 's understanding of gender was broadening, and museums weren't collecting in response and so it was it was a but deeply concerning to me, that this moment in trans history and gender history at large, it's not just trans history, this is social history. This moment was not being captured through objects inside museums. And therefore, in a hundred years time, when we looked back on this moment, this really, really significant moment in gender, gender social history, we would be left retracing these moments using the same records that we use to look back and locate gay men in the past, right? We would be left with criminal records. We would be left with the spectacularization of trans lives in the media. We would we would be left with, with uh, medical records, the records are being sent to psychiatrists to see if we're trans enough, right? And so without building a collection that enables us to halt this erasure of transestory once and for all, to, to halt the historical spectacularization of gender nonconformity once and for all, we were going to re-perpetuate exactly the same mistakes we've made in queer history in the past. To
2: have this moment where you are conserving the present and the past at the same time by the people that it actually matters to, I can think of very few, if any, other collections about personal life and personal lived experience that exist in such a way and that have been able to be conserved i think really the only really the only things that match it possibly is political activism where museums are very good at going at recognizing a moment of political activism and saying well we need the banners we need um we need experiences we need records from the people who attended those protests and were present you're talking about the trans tipping point as a moment that's now recognised in culture. Can you explain a little bit more about how that came about?
4: I think that to think that the trans movement suddenly gained recognition and it just happened at this moment is flawed. In actual fact, we can look back throughout history and locate gender diversity since time began. This is is all part of, of really addressing the way that museums in the Western world have privileged outlooks that are a result of myopic lenses that really come back to, I would say, the lack of diversity that we have in the sector at large. If we don't proactively strive to include voices that traditionally have been excluded or marginalised, we will continue to exclude them. And so this brings us on, for example, with queer history. Are we really queering the museum or are we museuming what's queer? <laughs> are we actually going to re perpetuate exactly the same models that privilege the white, not the black, the rich, not the poor, the, the, the free, not the incarcerated? Right? Are we going to keep perpetuating these models within the, the, the queer history world as well? Or are we going to challenge the models of collecting and interpretation by going, these people aren't hard to reach, they haven't been reached. These people aren't hard to reach, they're hardly reached. You know, if we, we quite often talk in the museum world about hard to reach audiences. In actual fact, why would you go to a museum if you don't see yourself there? What you're actually expecting people to do is to come along and look at everyone else except themselves. This displaces people, this others people, this for the, for the gender non-conforming person says, you are destined to be forgotten. You do not have the right to be remembered. You have not contributed to the evolution of society. You are historically homeless. So we have to proactively go out and reread and find these stories and artifacts because they're there. They're just ignored. They're not hidden. They're erased.
2: I think one of the problems that we have is people view trans culture as something that isn't absolutely a modern thing. It's a new thing. People are. People fixate on it, they think it's never existed before because of exactly these reasons that you're saying because they haven't seen it in museums, because they haven't read about it in the history books, because they are unaware of it, they haven't been told that it hasn't been shared with them, and it hasn't been acknowledged. And as someone who works in this sector, you know full well that we have people whose lives have not fitted what we define as cisgendered or heteronormative or singularly white. We know those people exist in history. And one of those figures is the Chevalier d'Aon. Now, can you tell us a little bit about why the little work that has been done and the growing field of work that has been done on this person is so important?
4: What's extraordinary about d'Aon is that Born in 1728, they're, they're born to a, a low noble family, they, they live a remarkable life until they die in poverty in their 80s. Um, but what is really incredible is in this 80-year lifespan of them, they captured the public imagination, particularly in the press. And we have to think about the press at this time that that printing is becoming much cheaper popular engravings are going up in shop windows around London. People who are not just wealthy can see these depictions because they can afford to see them. So so we might think of this time and, and Dion's visibility as really marking a moment in history that sees the birth of the transphobic press as we can recognise it today, the birth of the homophobic press. This is a period when we are seeing macaronis, for example, depicted with feminine characteristics and derided for that. So if you are seen to be fashionable coming back from Italy, you've done your grand tour, you're wealthy, you're wearing silks, you're in the middle of London, you're enacting women's fashions too much as a man, therefore you must be effeminate aka gender nonconforming aka immoral right this Chevalier fits into into this line of thinking and this this surge in visual culture that surrounds deriding gender nonconformativity however they are an extraordinary person because they don't shy away from it in the time that they were stationed in england they are disowned by the french government they they Stipend is cut off, and so they fall into poverty. They basically they lose their pension through all of this, and it was a huge thing. It was in the press that these scandalous letters that they published. The English adored them because they turned their back on 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 the French, etc. But because they fell into poverty, they had to look to earn their own money, and in this process of needing to earn any way that they could they put on fencing matches where they charged tickets and the tickets were to come and see them fence against a soldier wearing women's clothes but also their French Medal of Honor which obviously can only be awarded to a man. So they're enacting this, 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 this gender scandal publicly and profiting from it. Now, this is, this is an extraordinary thing, and this is really why they're so important, because this is not someone who is passive in public about their gender identity. They completely and utterly capture the press, completely and utterly capture the public's fascination. They are in print after print after print in the British Museum. Right. So it's so extraordinary to see, A, they're in the popular press, B, they're out, C, they're profiting from this. But of course, when they do eventually die in poverty, living with a widow, when they die, they are taken immediately for an autopsy. And they are the, the, the graphic biological drawings of their genitalia. Is then done non-consensually obviously and you can see them lying on on the medical examination board with their dress lifted up and the, the illustrator has gone to the trouble of illustrating their dress in the background while they're illustrating their genitalia so it's it turns out to be a devastating end because of the lack of respect that is shown to them post mortem. So
2: it's it's very much in a way that this is someone whose body became public property in a way they may have felt in control of while they were alive, while they were alive, and then lost complete control of at their death. Which is something that I think we're still we're doing today to modern trans people just by their existence in in our popular press. Our focus, our fixation, is on their physical body and not on the lives that they're living. And and so we're we're continuing this, we're repeating it in many ways.
4: And there's an image one of the images that depicts Dion in the British Museum is called the trial of Dion, a jury of of of, of sorry, a jury of matrons. And in this engraving there's 12 women sitting as a jury, looking at Dion, who's depicted as half-size, so the inference is that they're not fully developed. They're naked, except for a sash over them, and they're on a plinth, as if they're some kind of Greek mythical statue, Right, which is where we often, you know, can trace some of the earliest depictions of of gender non-conforming, particularly intersex people. So almost like this Grecian sculpture. And the women are flapping their fans and talking behind their fans and and they're spectating. And basically, they've got they're nude and they are the judge of of whether their gender identity matches their biological sex. And it is they who have the authority to do that. And it's extraordinary because we still have these boards of gender critics judging trans people, reducing them to nakedness in order to investigate whether or not, according to them, their gender identity is in accordance with their sexual biology. And and that's what, for me, you know, that's, that's the place of, that that's why Diane is so important to me because the fact is that it was about their gender identity being removed from their sex and that they were out and open about this to the extent that they had a successful career as a soldier, as a man, through to actually dying as a woman in women's clothes their life was lived to an extent on their terms, certainly this is retrospectively, and we don't have comments from Dayon that that allows us to investigate this according to our modern terms of transness, but we certainly can read this piece of, of print culture as an important way Of trans people being able to locate, that we existed throughout history, we had significant roles in government, that we negotiated peace treaties, you know, that we weren't just living in poverty um, and, and, and these dire lives of trauma. On the contrary, we are diverse in our roles throughout history as we are today.
2: I think that's one of the things that we we maybe fail at, perhaps as historians in communicating this history to the past, is the idea that trans lives are queer lives and lives that don't fit people's understanding are somehow either victimhood or trauma or trauma ridden or, or forgotten when actually, when you look at it and you unpack it, you have people living spectacular lives and also very ordinary lives or lives that are that are just human, and it's unpacking those people that that really matters so much. Perhaps, I wonder if you'd agree with me on this, that actually what our society and our culture needs to do is in many ways take a step backwards into the past, into history, where sexuality was far more diverse, and it was being discussed, but it didn't have the rules that come from the 20th century scientific study of trans and queer people that put it as something that was a mental illness, which is what everyone is fighting so hard to erase now. And actually, if we move into the past, into our historical ancestors, we find that their discussions around gender and around diversity and a diversity of gender identity, there's a lot more freedom there. I'm thinking about the Molly houses. I'm thinking about Molly culture. I'm thinking about the Chevalier. And he's, the, this person is not alone in that they're not the only example we have
4: and i think it's also important to note that we're coming from a very western perspective here as well so if we broaden our cultural lenses it's you know there's 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 gender diversity across cultures in different societies dealt with differently not through not through this 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 mode of of oppression or persecution in gender diversity historically within Western society has has been seen by the authorities to be immoral and so Charles Hamilton um, who, who was a, a gender non-conforming person um, by the time they were 14, 1746, they, they had married um, Mary Price in Wells in England within a couple of months. She's come out and said she didn't know that Charles wasn't really a man, right? So there's there's this idea that, 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 it's all trickery and tomfoolery, gender identity. In actual fact, Charles had done two apprenticeships as, uh, with quack doctors, travelled England selling ointments and, and treatments and cures, so lived a professional, independent life in men's attire, earning money, independent. Um, this is well, well earlier than, than just tricking Mary in 1746. I was at the British Museum um, with some some um, some of the members of the Queer East Film Festival, and we had artifacts out on the table that we were looking at, and one of them was of the Hindu god. Um, uh, uh, Ada Narashvara, And, and, and Adha Narashvara is, 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 is an, an enactment of the Hindu god Shiva when they merge with their wife Parvati. And as a trans person and the other trans people in the room, because we're all a bunch of queers looking into the archives, having the time of our lives, yeah, we always existed, yay! And so we're like, oh, whoa, there's a trans Hindu god! And very quickly the person who was leading it from Queer East Film Festival said, actually, That's not the way to look at this. This is a merging of a male God and and a female God in order to link these traditional attributes to come forward. But it's both parts. It's not a one, a one trans outcome. However, what we could locate was that there was a moment of merging of parts. And so that is a modern validation of the trans experience. What was important though, was to look at it through another cultural lens by someone who knew the culture. And for me as a white Westerner, not to just to go, woo-hoo, yay, trans hippy god, no totally inappropriate and colonising that picture because we're all colonised, right? And we all need to learn how to decolonize ourselves, particularly within the heritage environment. But it certainly was evidence of a different cultural approach to understanding the importance spiritually of, of gender-verging If you like. And it was the most interesting moment for me because of all those reasons, reminding myself that that I can't superimpose my colonial lens onto everything, that we can't retrospectively say someone was fixed as trans. However, we absolutely can locate gender nonconformity in the past, and it can teach us so much about the position we are still in today. History has a role to play in healing the fraught politics that are enacted today. History has a role to play to teach us how to better understand that gender nonconformity is the future for us all it liberates us all. It is an opportunity for us all to find out who we are and enact who we want to be, regardless of what we're born with between our legs.
2: Powerful words from EJ Scott there on why lives like the Chevaliers are so important to us today and how modern day curators are fighting to give us better collections that more accurately represent our past in all of its glorious diversity. And that makes me think back to that April day and the Prince of Wales watching the Chevalier d'Eon at a fencing match. This amazing picture we opened with is held in the Royal Collections, as well as etchings in the British Museum, and you can see both online. But d'Eon isn't the only person of interest in that picture. His adversary is the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who himself was not only a champion fencer, but also a classical composer, conductor and violinist, as well as being the son of a slave. Saint-Georges fought for the Republic during the French Revolution and led the first all-black regiment in Europe. These lives may not become clear to us when we look at a simple etching of two fences, but as E.J. Scott has argued, we have to push beyond our initial preconceptions and find the truth about historical lives that are held in archives across the world. They are rarely what we thought. For more information on this and all other episodes of Not What You Thought You Knew, head to skyhistory.co.uk and get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag #NotWhatYouThought or by tagging at history UK or at fern riddell. and if you've enjoyed this episode please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and finally a big thank you to my guests dr andrew lear and ej scott this episode of not what you thought you knew was hosted by me dr fern riddell Produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross and our series producer is Sam Pearson.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.